Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. Lord, I am coming as fast as I can. I know I must pass through the shadow of death before I can come to see thee, but it is though a mere shadow of death, a little darkness upon nature, but thou by thy merits and passion hast broke through the jaws of death. So, Lord, receive my soul and have mercy upon me and bless this kingdom with peace and plenty and with brotherly love and charity that there may not be this effusion of Christian blood among them for Jesus Christ's sake, if it be your will. This was the final prayer of William Laud as his head was promptly removed after this prayer <laughs> on January the 10th. <laughs> January the 10th uh, in 1645. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you should be laughing at the decapitation of a leading church figure. Though. I, I probably should uh, restart <laughs> our recording, right? No, this is, this is, we want to talk about William Laud in this first episode uh, of this new season. Uh, of this week in church history. I'm here with uh, Michael McMullen, and uh, I'm John Mark Yates, and we get a chance to talk about all these figures in church history. And uh, in the 17th century in Britain, there was a man by the name of William Laud who eventually attained the role of Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the highest positions in the Church of England, yet maybe he shouldn't have been there. Well, you know, firstly, I would like to say I'm kind of surprised that William Lord is the subject for today when it's actually the anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans, when General Andrew Jackson led a ragtag, you know, band against 8,000 heavily armed British troops there. I thought that would have been much more appropriate, <laughs> especially with the present political climate. But William, William Lord is, a, is another good figure to look at. Well... I figured that we would talk about Laud because uh, as we were dealing with Puritans in the fall during our first season, we talked uh, about quite a few of these individuals, and Laud was one of the persons who made life in Puritan England rather unbearable. For me, Laud is a fairly complex character. You, you read an incredible prayer that he prayed. Um, which it would be impossible for an evangelical, in a sense, to disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet this is a man who um, would do incredible things to other Christians, including, you know, encouraging them um, with the possibility of a trial or death or confiscation or something to flee to America. Mm-hmm. Um, he would take an active part in trials of other people um, where they would end up having their ears cut off um, and their cheeks branded. Um, and, and so, you know, again, it, it reminds us, I think, that, um, you know, we're all fallen people. And even as leaders in the church, we can make mistakes or get distracted or something, maybe hopefully not maybe as far as William Lord did. It's, it, it's interesting, even in his uh, uh, own day, um, there was a, uh, a, a joke uh, attributed to uh, Charles Jester um, that 
said, great praise to the Lord and a little laud to the devil. Um, it was a, a an attempt upon it at how conniving and manipulative he often was uh, within his own day and time. Now, he was born on the 7th of October in 1573 and um, kind of grew up in a, in a normal family, so to speak, but he never married, never, you know, carried on. Uh, and Dr. McMullen is, is sending signals here. You want to talk about his marital status? <laughs> no, just that, you know, um, Lord, along with a, a lot of other people, has left us um, incredible insights into his life and times with very detailed diaries. Mm-hmm. And, and the diaries were used by the man um, whose ears he cut off um, uh, in, in part of the trial material, the evidence that was brought before Parliament for uh, the conviction of Lord. And, and in those diaries, there are veiled or, or secretive or, or hidden um, agendas and meetings and liaisons that uh, William Lord had with others um, that, you know, people wanted to use as part of the evidence against him, but it, they weren't overt enough to be used, let's just say. So he wasn't necessarily sexually pure, uh, it looks like, at least based on the evidence that we see, which, you know, as he began to, um, uh, he studied at Oxford, uh, carried on, uh, kind of worked in a couple of different uh, uh, churches before um, coming pretty much under the patronage of James I. And uh, while he is, uh, while James is ruling, he becomes dean of the church in Gloucester, where the big mess or problem that he uh, he had there was he moved the communion table. Why was that a big deal? Yeah. First, let's just say it was in Gloucester. Oh. But, you know. Um, well, I'm still not, I'm not a bread, so there you and, go. And uh, we're in the age of the Puritans, so we're wanting to purify anything that reminds us of Catholic worship. Catholic practice. And, um, you know, part of the, the issue for the Puritans is there remains so much within the Church of England that still for them hadn't been purified enough. So even having things like side altars or stained glass or bishops or vestments um, w- was for them something which needed really to be taken away. They wanted a church that was as simple in its worship and practice as possible. And um, moving the, the, you know, the, the table, the, the altar to face east was what was done in a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, now these are Protestant churches. And, and every, that was one issue. Everything Lord seemed to want to do, um, you know, seemingly was bringing back Catholic practice which really was a mistake. Lord was a committed uh, Puritan, but it was his actions which he believed he could do simply because of his authority, and it shouldn't right. be questioned. Um, but, but it really did rile the, the other Puritans. So, yeah, he, he was a committed Church of England uh, clergyman. I, he, he really was not prone in any way, shape, or, or form towards Catholicism. Yeah, he was absolute, absolutely committed to the church. 
his work here created all kinds of problems, uh, led to his alienation and ostracization by uh, and criticism by so many uh, individuals uh, relating to this, put him in a, a very difficult uh, position. But it's really under Charles I that he uh, ascends to a place of greatness and of uh, importance in the uh, in kind of the political arena and sphere and. It's then he also really becomes the bane of the Puritan's existence. Yeah, and I think I make, made a mistake. I think I said Puritan when I meant Anglican. Um, he certainly wasn't a Puritan. He was asked to draw up a list of churchmen for promotion. And uh, uh, alongside names, he would use a big P uh, to mm -hmm. denote they were Puritan and so shouldn't be promoted. Uh, you know, for him, his loyalty was to the fact that the king was the head of the church. Um, or maybe he just realized that that was the way for his promotion. He was very politically astute. Yes. Uh, the positions that he held, it, it was an incredible meteoric rise, really, mm -hmm. uh, when he realized, you know, how the system worked and, and what he needed to do to bring that about. It's uh, it, it is interesting when you, you read this. It was for James that he he made the list and uh, indicated who James should consider or not consider uh, that that really brought him closer into contact with with the throne. Um, it, under Charles, uh, he he was um, part of the chapel royal, right? So he was helping in the leadership of the of the pastoring and shepherding of the royal family. He's, he's in contact, uh, becomes uh, a, a confidant, um, and, and actually politically kind of plays that, where he adjusts well, some of the liturgy to Charles please Charles. really likes the idea as Lord has, has encouraged him um, that he has the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. and, and Lord impresses that on Charles especially so that his word is law in the church as it is in the state. Um, no wonder that Lord then will become preferred and promoted and encouraged. <laughs> and, and with that growth in position, he eventually is placed in that essential position as, uh, um, uh, as Archbishop of Canterbury, this, this key seat. Uh, in the Church of England. Uh, from there, what does he do to the Puritans um, that, that really made him such an oppositional figure? The, the Puritans will become sidelined. They'll um, face, uh, it, it, depending on their position, they face you know, increasing um, opposition from Lord and, and from the hierarchy in the church. So, and this is where I think you mentioned earlier too, this is where you get the movement of, um, of many Puritans to, uh, towards the United States uh, or what yeah, will they, eventually they become the United no States. freedom um, to preach in the way that they have or, or believe that they should have. There's an increase in intervention by Lord um, against them with the authority of the king behind him. And, and Lord will use that. He will uh, have a, a massive program of visitation amongst churches. 
not to encourage them, <laughs> uh, but to catch them, to make sure that they are um, worshipping according to the Book of Common Prayer um, without omission mm-hmm. or addition. Um, you know, in, in prior days, the Book of Common Prayer had been there, but churches had had a freedom uh, to use what they wanted, uh, to leave out what they wanted, or to add what they wanted within parameters. Uh, Lord was a detail man. Uh, everything was to be done only in accordance with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and a lot of Puritans had an issue with that, uh, praying from a book. Um, and, and that was an issue for many of them. Right. And, within the Bible. Yes. And, and so Lord would, you know, seek to impose that on them. And increasingly, um, the new world held out a hope that that's where you could have freedom to preach and worship as you wish, not according to the king or Lord's dictates. And, and so this type of personality in such a close connection with the, the crown created that dynamic environment that we see that um, really brings the Puritans to a place where the separatists had already arrived, that there was no hope here. And um, we, we've got to find some different solutions uh, typically to be able to to be able to worship in the way that we see fit. So as Laud is um, moving through his uh, his ministry and his life, uh, he he does make it to a ripe old age before he is uh, put to death. What changes in the political atmosphere that w- that Laud, this confidant of the king, would even be imperiled? Did he change his mind about his ideals or his uh, framing of the way that the Church of England should function? Lord, in a sense, became even stricter in imposition. And, and once he started to seriously uh, try to impose a, an Anglican restrict, restricted worship on Scotland, uh, that would be a problem. And it it was Lord's direct move to do this on the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian body, um, which created the move for the the, the National Covenant in Scotland, Mm -hmm. the the Solemn League and Covenant. And and you now have a a military move against the English king, uh, based primarily on on the attitudes and actions of William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which (laughs) seems an incredible thing. And, and so you're going to have a civil war uh, really preempted by this union of, of church and state to an, you know, an incredible degree yep. with Charles and Lord. Uh, and, and really, I think a, a lot of what we see in the English Civil War and the war between Scotland and England um, is basically down to Lord mm. more than Charles. Uh, Charles has his own issues with the parliament. But, you know, Charles calls Parliament together. He's not had them convene for, I think, 11 years. He calls them together. And the only reason is he wants funding now to fight Scotland right. because of what Lord has done. And that leaves Laud in this precarious position between Parliament and the Crown. So Parliament itself is the one who pretty much has the trial and convicts him to uh, go to his death. Yeah, I mean, Lord all along has been, you know, a, a supporter and someone patronized by the monarchy. And and he's chosen a side for decades, which profited him. 
uh, and then suddenly it's going to cost him. And he dies without the crown's protection. Why would the crown abandon him? Um, well, you're in the middle of the, the English Civil War, mm-hmm. and uh, Lord is now not the asset that he ever was, um, and, and things have changed dramatically, and Lord will end up, you know, uh, being decapitated outside the Tower of London. So you can go today, and uh, isn't there a plaque at the Tower yes, of London you can, still? You can go to Tower Hill outside of the Tower of London and, and see the plaque where he and hundreds of others uh, all lost the heads. If you were not of, of nobility or royalty, then uh, even if you were kept in the Tower of London as a prisoner as he was, you would be taken outside the walls to be executed. And then his memory overall corporately still never lost at least some of its uh, reputation. Uh, it, it's, I think, in, the, uh, in one of the cathedrals uh, that Laud still commemorated and in, in the stained glass right along with uh, Henry VIII. Uh, yeah, and I think right he along- has a, a feast day. Uh, attributed to him within the Church of England too. Hmm. Um, he, it, I think it's part of this being complex. Um, you know, the moving of, of the altar, the, the stained glass, the way he wanted to beautify many of the churches in England after the uh, official Reformation. I think, you know, trying to be uh, honest and, and generous with him um, was never done from a Catholic motive, but done from a motive to make the churches more beautiful, um, as he said, really, to reflect something of the beauty of Christ. So when we're thinking about historical figures, I, you know, I think we would probably, if we were to weigh him on our own sense of justice and understanding of what we see, we would probably put him in the negative category rather than positive. But yet this shows that this is so complex when we look at this, that there are still positives that are attained by some of these individuals and that there are still things that even the Church of England still chooses to kind of remember positively from, from Laud. Yeah, we see things, I think, so black and white, and, and it's so easy for us to make a judgment. Um, and, and yet, you know, to, to do that really it is to be quite superficial, um, unless maybe you've read everything he wrote, uh, all his diaries, to try and uh, at least see the pressures that he was living with, the, the time in which he lived, and, and not to dismiss him outrightly as an enemy of the Puritans or an enemy of the separatists. In a sense, yeah, he was that, um, you know, but there's more to him than that. He really did want, you know, worship to be done in a certain way so that it was in order and, and that it really did reflect something of who God was and what he'd done in Christ uh, for the church. And that is such a powerful legacy if only he had followed through on some of the other pieces to just, you know, promote some of that positive reformation that was happening within the context of the Church of England. You, you can only imagine what if that had happened. Those days of power of the kings, the monarchy, um, so difficult for us to, to appreciate exactly how hard it would have been for 
you know, men within the church, evangelicals to operate, Puritans, mm-hmm. separatists, all the different pressures. So incredibly complex. And we, we think of our own time as being complex. Uh, in, at least in Great Britain during this time period, it is, it is so disruptive. And uh, uh, a false move was a life sentence, uh, a, a sentence of death. And it is so complex. In, in I mean, there is churches. one thing that we could say, you know, he did lose his life. Um, but for no real crime, mm-hmm. um, Parliament simply couldn't prove a crime that he'd committed and, and so said that they could simply make anything that someone had done a crime of treason right. and, and then, um, and, uh, you know, sentence you to death. And, and so one good thing is, you know, nothing about him could be proven and to actually sentence him to death. So, And there we have it. William Laud, controversial figure, difficult man to, uh, to look at uh, when it came, comes down to it in terms of his legacy and the pieces that are there. Um, but also, anytime you study the Puritans, especially uh, during the early 17th century, you cannot help but run into the figure of William Laud, who died on the 10th of January. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This Week in Church History. Before we leave, one quick uh, comment for this spring. Uh, My colleague, uh, Dr. Michael McMullen, uh, you've been granted a sabbatical. What does that mean in the context of an academic's life? Um, It it will mean a, a period where I am relieved from teaching and administrative duties at the seminary um, to allow me um, a time of, of intensive research and study for uh, work that I am undertaking to publish. So hopefully um, uh, uh, my book, which has taken 10 years or so on William Wilberforce, will be completed and heading towards the publishers and further work that I'm doing on him will also kind of get a a very good head start too. So that means for the remainder of the spring, well, we will take advantage of every opportunity we have to have Dr. McMullen join us. It may be a bit spotty uh, in places uh, while he is doing yeoman's work and the life and work of William Wilberforce, which hopefully we'll have a chance even to talk about uh, a little bit more uh, uh, your work and, and research in uh, the, the life and ministry and um, really calling of Wilberforce to do amazing things. Yeah, you know, just to remind the church of the incredible gift that he was. Excellent. Well, again, listener, thank you for joining with us for this first episode of the new year. As always, we're thankful for you, and we look forward to you joining us next week for This Week in Church History.